0: The Tyndale Old Testament commentary gives this chapter the title, The Way Home. And I think that is exactly right. In chapter 13, the prophet gave a summary of all the charges that God was bringing against Israel. They had committed idolatry. They were ungrateful for the grace and deliverance they had received. They had been foolish in their political maneuverings, and they had been complacent in the face of judgment. They had been warned so many times, but like a foolish, stubborn, wicked son, they refused to give up their sins and to become who they had been called and saved to be. They were willful and incorrigible and therefore headed toward judgment. Chapter 14 then represents both a call to repentance and a picture of final restoration. The focus now is almost entirely upon the distant future, after the scourging, after the grinding, after the savagery and scattering. Hosea sees the end and life and hope on the other side. He is truly the deathbed prophet, and this is the word of the Lord. Let's read it together now, beginning at verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. The first word there in verse 1 is very important. It's the Hebrew word shuv or shuvah as we find it here. It means basically to turn. Israel has always been turning the wrong way. And now it's time to stop that. It's time to stop following your own instincts. It's time to stop listening to your own inner compass. Your own inner compass is broken. That's how you got into this mess. So it won't be the thing that gets you out of this mess. You need to stop and you need to turn back to the Lord because you have stumbled Because of your iniquity. That is step one on the road to repentance. You've heard me say many times that one of the main interests in the book of Hosea is to detail the nature of real repentance. In chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, we were given an example of false repentance. The Bible is very interested in helping us distinguish between real repentance and false repentance because there is no one so lost as the person who thinks they are going home when in fact they are wandering further away into darkness and judgment. That is the worst thing you could possibly imagine. And therefore, the most important thing you could possibly imagine is understanding the difference between real and false repentance. Step one in real repentance is turning to god and acknowledging that all of your troubles spring from the source of your sin i love how the niv renders verse 1 it says return israel to the lord your god your sins have been your downfall exactly that's what we're saying repentance begins with understanding that your sins have been your downfall. So if you are still blaming someone else, if you are blaming the system or the process or anyone else within arm's reach, you are not repenting. Repenting begins with understanding and acknowledging that your sins have been your downfall. That's step one. And you cannot bypass step one on the road home. You've got to start right and you've got to say right. In verse 2, he tells Israel, take words with you. And then he gives him the words. Go to God and say, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. David Allen Hubbard comments here saying, the personal relationship could be restored only by words that make a personal commitment. Words so important that the prophet could not leave them to chance but listed them precisely in a litany of contrition, quote. He says, go to God and say this to God and make sure you mean it. Verse three, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will say no more. Our God to the work of our hands in you, the orphan finds mercy. So ask God to take away your sins. Ask God to receive your pleas for mercy. Tell God that you want to serve and worship him in a way that is pleasing to him. Tell him that you have turned away from every false support. Tell him that you want to be singular in your love and devotion. And tell him that you are only daring to come to him in this way because you know that he is the God of mercy. That's good repenting. That's exactly what you need to say if you really intend to get right with God. And now here in verses 4 to 7, the prophet anticipates, as it were, how God will respond when Israel repents in this way. He says, verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon." God is so eager to forgive and restore. Doesn't this sound like the father in the prodigal son story? As soon as the wasteful and stupid son comes to his senses in the pile of pig slop that he's been living in, as soon as he turns around and sets his heart on home, the father runs to forgive him. He rushes to restore. He rejoices because that which was lost has been found. That's exactly who God is in this oracle. He is the healer of our apostasy. Oh, how our apostasy wounds us. Oh, how our sin diminishes us. But God is the great physician. He knows how to heal that which sin has wounded. And when Israel turns to him, his wrath turns away from them. It will have done its work. Its purpose was to drive them home. Its purpose was to bring them back. That's what the curse is, brothers and sisters. It is God poisoning all the wells in our desert of rebellion. It is God walling up every way that leads to ruin. It is God bringing his children home. And when we come... He greets us and washes us and overwhelms us with renewal. He is like the dew, restoring all that withered and was lost in our long exile. So we become again who we were made and saved to be. The beautiful vine, the precious lily, the fruitful tree. That's what is waiting for us on the other side. Verse 8. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Here God is saying that if Israel comes home, then he must determine to leave all his idols behind. You have to come home empty handed. As New Testament saints, we sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's the same idea being expressed here. Leave all that behind, son. You don't need it anyway. I am your source of life and health. Verse nine, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Daniel Carroll says here, the final verse challenges the reader to learn from the prophetic message and the experiences of Israel. Closed quote. This is very similar to how the Apostle Paul said that we should use these stories in the Old Testament. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, 6-7, now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. So, Hosea understands that even if his message is not embraced by his own contemporaries, it will still be used by God to warn and instruct others. And as I mentioned in the introduction to this series, that is exactly how the book of Hosea functioned in the history of God's people. David Allen Hubbard says, for example, that Hosea seems to have completed his ministry shortly before the fall of Samaria and the final destruction of the northern kingdom. It was likely this event that caused him to be recognized as a true prophet and his words to be safeguarded and transported down to Judah where they became a major influence for reform. Many scholars observe an obvious dependence in Jeremiah, a prophet in the southern kingdom, upon the earlier work of Hosea. Martin Buber, for example, has called Jeremiah Hosea's posthumous disciple, closed quote. So Hosea issued a call that was largely, though not exclusively, ignored in his generation. But when everything he said came to pass, his message became a warning to a future generation, a role that it continues to play by the grace of God in every generation. In every generation, we need to know who God is and who we are and how God works to redeem and restore a people for himself. Few books do all those things, more exhaustively and more usefully than the book of Hosea. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry, Mile One, in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation.